2: On this episode of Newt's World, the student debt crisis has been building for decades. And we now have an entire generation of Americans owing a $1,500,000,000,000 in student loan debt. A staggering amount that's nearly equal to the gross domestic product of Canada. But what caused the student loan debt crisis? The spiraling cost of college tuition, easy access to student loans, and what role did the federal government play in this? There's no doubt that the student debt crisis profoundly affects millennials and Gen Z and the debt they carry has had an impact on their ability to buy homes. There have been catastrophic consequences that student debt has had on families and the nation's future. Here to talk more about the student debt crisis, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Josh Mitchell. He is a reporter in the Washington Bureau of the Wall Street Journal, writing about the economy and higher education And he is the author of a new book, The Debt Trap, How Student Loans Became a National Catastrophe. Josh, thank you for joining me. You've done a great job of both being general, but also being very human and very specific. And you open every chapter with A human story are there one or two that you found particularly effective
3: the main character of my book is a woman who grew up in eastern pennsylvania and she was a secretary in the 90s and she felt that she really had to go to college she wanted to be a psychologist and so she went to her local college and then her local graduate school they were both private schools but they weren't, you know, fancy schools, and yet she had to take on one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars in debt total by the time she graduated to become a psychologist. And she was a single mom with two kids, and she could never get ahead of her bills. She would very responsibly pay her student loan bill every month, and yet it was such a big bill, you know, with seven hundred dollars a month she was paying, that it was taking her thirty years to pay it off, and the balance was barely going down. And she could never get a hold of it. And a lot of other things went wrong in her life. And she ended up declaring bankruptcy. The most touching part of reporting this book was I sat down with her in her office and I was interviewing her. She ended up paying more than what she had borrowed, but she still had all this interest that had accrued. So she's not one of those that never sent a check, quite the opposite. She paid a lot of money back toward her college education. And she said that her bankruptcy lawyer told her you know, you're know, you not going to be able to get out of this debt because Congress has made it so hard to declare bankruptcy and that it's almost impossible to get out of this debt. Well, try it, but that it's very hard. And at one point, her lawyer said, if you want to get out of this debt, you're going to have to convince the judge that you're beyond all hope. She just cried. And when I was interviewing her and said, you know, I have spent my whole career counseling people to not be suicidal. That's the main thing I do as a psychologist is when someone is in desperate straits, you know, I try to get them to be in a better headspace. And here I have the government telling me the only way I can get out is essentially if I'm suicidal. And she said they treated me like I'm a criminal. And even though she had tried so hard year after year to pay back her loans, she had a lot of problems with the servicer of her loans. She was not getting, you know, adequate information about repayment plans. And that was the most touching part. I raised her story with Al Lord, the CEO of Sally May, which was her lender. And he said, "Wow, it sounds like she did everything right. And yet she still ended up in a really bad place. And that was why I wrote this book, because the discussion in Washington focuses on stats. It focuses on policy. It doesn't focus enough on sort of the human experience here. And when you talk to people like that, you realize the system can be quite dysfunctional and really work against people. I decided that there was an appetite for people to read more about how we got into this mess. Covering student debt, you're sort of, you have a toe in two worlds. You know, one world is academics and economists and some policymakers and college presidents who say, you know, this is not a problem. In fact, college is the best thing you can do for yourself. And student debt, the crisis is overblown, but then you get emails from people who are directly impacted, and they say, oh my God, you have no idea how much of a mess this has turned out. I never knew what I was getting myself into. And I wanted to sort of reconcile these two worlds, and I wanted to explain how we got here.
2: According to the U.S. Census Bureau, in 1940, only 4.6% of Americans aged 25 and over had a college degree of some type. As of 2020, nearly 94 million, or 42%, of Americans age 25 and over have a college degree. That's a tenfold increase in the share of the population with a degree. Has that been all positive in your judgment?
3: For the most part, I think it's been a good thing. I want to be clear about what I argue in my book. I don't think that the student loan program is all bad. I think that it has led to some good outcomes. It has expanded access. It has achieved one of its main goals, which is that it has said that regardless of how wealthy you are or how poor you are, you can go to the college of your choice as long as you can get in. So that's the good part, but this has come at a tremendous cost, I argue. It's like healthcare. We have the best hospitals in the world and our healthcare system has a lot of great things about it, but it's incredibly inefficient and costly. And I think higher education has become the same way through this really convoluted, opaque pricing system through student loans. It's becoming way more expensive than it would if there wasn't this open access to
2: credit. Today, apparently 43 million people owe a trillion six hundred billion dollars in student debt, and that amount has tripled since 2006. I mean, it's like we're on a giant treadmill. As a conservative, I've always been very dubious about a debt-based system, and I've always assumed that if the government got involved, that prices and costs would go up. But what would you say has been the effect of the student loan program on the cost of going to school?
3: Well, one of the main arguments of my book is that it has contributed to tuition inflation. I bring a lot of anecdotal evidence, a lot of empirical evidence to this question. It's one of the most hotly debated questions among economists and academics. The reason why I argue this is because the very intent of the program, if you go back 40, 50 years ago, was to enable colleges to raise their tuition. So back then, schools were saying, you know, look, we need to have a greater ability to raise money through tuition. And the way to do that is to give students access to more credit so that they can afford the tuition increases. And this will all work out for everyone. So that was one of the original arguments of the program. So when people tell me these days, oh, there's not really a link, I say, well, you know, that's interesting because back then a lot of the schools were saying they needed this loan program money to enable themselves to raise tuition. So I think that there's a direct impact. Let's just put it this way. The government essentially gives college students and graduate students a blank check, literally a blank check, to go to the school of their choice. Now, undergraduates face a cap on how much they can borrow, but their parents can pick up any slack if the undergraduate can't take out enough to cover tuition. The parent can come in and borrow whatever the balance is. So grad students can borrow whatever it has handed tremendous pricing power to these schools to raise tuition. And so if you want to know why tuition has increased at triple the rate of inflation over the past 30 or 40 years, I really don't think it's, it's a surprise that that's happened.
2: My impression is that actually education costs have gone up faster than health costs. But they're so buffered by the government loan program that people haven't realized how much debt they're building up.
3: And, you know, just to further answer your question, there's a really dramatic chart that I wish I would have put in my book. It's from the book of these two Harvard economists, Larry Katz and Claudia Golden, where it shows what tuition did since the 40s. And, you know, it was roughly flat in the 60s and 70s. And then starting in 1980, it just absolutely skyrockets in the early 1980s. Now, I think that there were several reasons for that, including the recession that, you know, sort of opened up the college wage premium, but it was in the early 1980s when this program really got off the ground and colleges got access to this big pot of taxpayer money. And so I think that there's been a very close correlation between the expansion of credit for students and tuition going on.
1: Mark your calendars and be the first to see it, March 20th, at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
2: So in a sense, the students had an interest, the parents had an interest, the faculty had an interest, the college administrators had an interest... So you describe it in a sense as an ideal example of crony capitalism. And I think people need to understand that this is also typical of defense and of a lot of healthcare care and everything else. The kind of relationships where supposedly private institutions actually have cut a deal with the government to get into your pocket from another direction.
3: Right. And... When I use the phrase "carne capitalism," you know, Sally May was a very big part of my book. I didn't realize how important they were to this story until I started researching it. And Sally May was, I would argue, the financial backbone of the higher education system for years and years and years. Now they weren't the only lender, and they weren't the only so-called secondary market. They were basically a machine that Congress created in 1972 to ensure that banks had the money to lend to students. So Congress is as responsible as any entity here in creating this mess. They started with good intentions. They wanted to make sure that you know every student who wanted to go to school but might not have been able to afford it had access to loans so that finances would not block them from going to college. But they relied on banks. And this is where I argue that higher education really started to become a commodity when they introduced banks in the process. Now. I want to be clear about the argument that I'm making here. I'm not bashing capitalism. I'm not bashing banks. I'm actually doing the opposite. What I'm arguing is, in the name of fiscal restraint, Congress created a very good deal for Sallie Mae and banks to make loans to students. And they did that by basically ensuring they would make a profit every time they lent to a college student, regardless of whether the student repaid. And so this was even worse than the housing bubble when, you know, Congress and home builders and banks were really sort of in this incestuous world of taxpayers covering a lot of the subsidies for the mortgage industry. Well, this was actually even worse because there was no underwriting that the banks had to do for these loans. And so Congress, in the name of fiscal restraint, was trying to twist the arms of banks to make these loans. And they did that by guaranteeing them a profit. And that's what I mean by crony capitalism. There was no risk involved in a healthy capitalistic market. If you're a bank and you lend to a student, you're supposed to have skin in the game where if the student goes to a bad school or if the student doesn't make enough money afterward, then the bank should suffer some losses if that's true capitalism. This was not true capitalism. Uh, Sally May and banks were making money hand over fist, even though for the past 30 or 40 years, students have been defaulting in droves. This default crisis that we have right now is nothing new. It's been going on for years and years and years. And yet Wall Street made a ton of money off this program.
2: Well, in a sense, it meant that you could dramatically expand the pool of potential students because you didn't care whether or not they were fiscally responsible. You didn't care whether or not they had any likelihood of repayment.
3: Or also what they studied, you know? You're not looking at what they study. You're not looking at the quality of the school. I'm just talking about Wall Street and right now. Let's talk about the schools. I mean, that's a whole other issue where the schools weren't on the hook for any losses either.
2: In that context, hasn't it also lengthened the amount of time people are spending in school? Let's go back to the 50s. As you mentioned, the
3: rate of people going into college was much lower than it is now. And so then you have the 50s and 60s where the focus is on getting people into college and the economy was evolving really quickly, though. And I think this is a credit to American society. Americans are very ambitious. And as soon as more and more people get college degrees, you have workers that want an additional leg up. So if college is now the new high school, then grad school became the new college. And I think that that's what's happened in the past 20 years is, You know, you have a lot more people having gone to college, and then you have a lot more ambitious workers saying, wait a minute, I need an additional leg up, let me go to grad school. And now my newspaper currently is doing a series this year looking at these elite graduate schools that... Are creating these programs that don't necessarily pay off. I mean, we had a story about students going to this Ivy League school to study film, a master's degree in film. They come out making $30,000, but they owe over $150,000 in debt. So I think what you're describing is what economists call degree inflation. And I certainly think that has happened. I don't think that that's the entire picture here, but I do think that that is one of the effects.
2: Well, and I think because the students found they had free money, or at least in terms of their immediate circumstance. They didn't feel the pressure to get through quickly.
3: Yeah, I think that there's some truth to that. I will tell you, though, I frame it a little bit differently in my mind, having spent a lot of time talking with families and asking them what the motivation was for them to get into a lot of debt. And I grew up in the 90s and I went to college in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I just remember being told by every corner of society, whether it was policymakers, whether it was my family, whether it was college officials themselves, if you read what they would say in the news, is that college is not a choice. In fact, LBJ, if you go back to the 60s, in one of his addresses to Congress, he said college is no longer a choice. It's now mandatory, basically. He was the first president, as far as I know, that said, you have to go to college in order to succeed. And I think families have been told that they have to do this if they want to succeed. And that's why they take on so much debt. And so when that's drilled into your head from a very young age, you think of this automatically as an investment. And I think that's what families did.
2: From that perspective, Sally Mae is sort of a fixed game in that they have no real risk of losing money. They, on the surface, look like they're private. And I think that they got something like 800 and. $81 million in 2020 in net income. I mean, what happens to that money?
3: Well, it goes to their shareholders. One of the people I interviewed was Al Lord. He was the CEO of Sally Mae in the late 90s through much of the 2000s. He made hundreds of millions of dollars in the early 2000s off of the student loan market. And again, this was sort of a Frankenstein that Congress had set up to basically obscure the cost of the program. You know, Congress wanted to provide universal access to college on the cheap, and they wanted to keep this off the books. When I said crony capitalism, I was referring to Sally May, and I wanna be careful because Sally May had a mandate from Congress to make a profit. It was created as a government sponsored enterprise and it was a for-profit corporation. So in some ways they were just simply fulfilling their mandate, but I'm curious, when you were the speaker, what did you think of them? Because there was this very big fight, obviously, as you know, between Clinton who wanted to basically kill the guaranteed loan program and Sally May or sever Sally May from the whole process and then there was Republicans at the time who were saying, no, we need to rely on the private sector that the Treasury Department can't handle such a big loan program. We have to rely on the private sector to do this. What was your thinking at the time
2: I don't think we ever fully understood how much the game was rigged because our thought was that if you had banks directly involved and if banks had skin in the game, that it would be run much more tightly, and that you would have much greater anti-fraud provisions, and that ultimately the taxpayer and the student would both pay less. Now, as you point out in the book, which is part of why I found this book so fascinating, is that this is a gigantic problem which has grown up all around us and which affects virtually all of us, either directly or through our children or grandchildren. And Almost none of us understand it. Even though I was Speaker of the House, I would say, I didn't understand the complexities and the kind of insider gimmicks that had been built into this. In some ways, it was modeled on how FDR had tried to build up housing in the 30s. And as I remember it, because it led to a crisis in the Reagan years, the savings and loan system actually did involve risk. And actually, it was run as a business. They had certain tax advantages, but they did not have any kind of government guarantee, which is why when they did collapse, it became a real mess. For about, I guess, 30 or 40 years, they'd been very successful in dramatically expanding housing. And I suspect that the guys in 72 were trying to take that model and bring it into paying for college, but without understanding that if you took out all of the risk factors what you're really creating is just a mechanism for transferring cash.
3: Right. And that's where I think housing is different from education. You know, banks were basically saying, if you want us to make these loans, you really have to take away the risk because students are risky. They don't have assets. They're 18 years old. They're 22 years old. Now, you know, The academics are going to yell at me because they're going to say, oh, well, there's a lot of older students these days. And, you know, there's a lot of people in their 20s and 30s. But, you know, education is a risky endeavor in the sense that you don't really know what you're going to earn afterwards. There's a lot of disparity of what a college student earns based on what they study. And so banks on the front end were saying, you know, why would we put our capital into college students when we could put it in the housing market? And again, Congress kept on saying, okay, fine, tell us what you need <laughs> to make these loans and we'll do it. And they basically said, we need money. And just to give people a sense of how much money they were making, and this is what Al Lord told me, he was this swashbuckling CEO of the 2000s who made all this money from Sally May. When he joined the company as its chief controller in the early 80s, he took the documents to him and he said, this is insane that the Congress is guaranteeing us a 3.5% spread between how much we pay to borrow money from the treasury and what college students actually pay as an in interest. This was like double what private lenders could earn on other type of products, at least according to him. Again, it ended up being a huge profit center.
1: Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
2: It's interesting, too, in terms of the national culture. Mike Rowe, who's done the podcast with us, who you may know from having done a whole series of things on work. Roe points out, and is very adamant about this, that if you go out and learn how to be a welder, you can make $160,000 a year, basically from the day you walk out of welding school, but that you won't feel socially like you're in the same class as somebody who graduated with a pottery degree and is currently teaching in grammar school. And so he said, the bias against just really profitable work is kind of amazing. And he's sort of on a crusade to get people to realize that we that may want to do it for personal or psychological reasons, but as a matter of economics, it's conceivable that college is not a very good investment for a very large number of people.
3: I'm glad you bring that up because so much of this has to do with the trajectory of our economy over the past 30 or 40 years. And as I was saying earlier, If you look at what happened in the 80s, when these big companies like Microsoft and Apple started to come online and computers started to become integrated with our economy, and all of this technology was coming on board, and then you had the global economy starting to open up, and these other countries that were increasingly competing against the United States, the college wage premium really started to widen. In other words, demand for college workers in the early 80s skyrocketed in big part because of the new technology that was coming on board. Companies wanted more skilled workers who could work with computers and software and really help integrate these new technologies. Meanwhile, with the decline of manufacturing and the increasingly global nature of the economy, blue collar workers their wages started to go down after inflation. So college-educated workers' wages go up, blue-collar workers' wages go down. And I showed this through characters in my book. I profile a secretary. She was a perfect example of this. She just felt like she was in a dead-end job, and she said, if I'm going to make it, I have to go to college. So she took out $100,000 plus to do so. And so to your point, you know, a lot of that social stigma of having a blue-collar job, I think, is associated with the fact that the wages of blue collar workers were going down. Now, I think what happened is, is that people paid too much to the average. And it is true that on average, college graduates do do pretty well in our economy. It's true that if you have a graduate degree, on average, you're going to be making much more than someone who has only a bachelor's degree. However, there's a lot of differentiation and variation underneath that average. The top 25% of workers with only a high school degree out earn the bottom 25% of workers who went to college. So there are a lot of people where college does not pay off. They're obscure by the average. And there are a lot of people who are getting access to good paying jobs that don't have a college degree. So I agree with you that I think there was the stigma attached to that.
2: It's interesting. I think doctors are the most notorious. If you have to borrow money to get through college, to then borrow money to get through med school. The amount you may owe is astronomical. My brother spent about 10 years as the chief investigator in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania had its own student loan program for medical doctors and and trying to encourage them to come and practice, particularly in small towns and rural areas. Well, his job was to track down the doctors who had skipped. You come out of medical school, you owe $300,000, yeah, there's a certain vested interest in just figuring out, can I get out of here and not pay any of it? So he would track down these guys and the stories he would tell about people who were really well educated and actually had a pretty good lifetime potential income, but just got impatient and decided they would just rip the system off. Now, I'm curious because you have immersed yourself and you've done a really important service for the country in taking the time to write the debt trap. What's your solution?
3: Well, I think history can be a guide here. You know, before the government got into the business of student lending, which started with Sputnik, Congress back then was really concerned about the country falling behind the Soviet Union, so they wanted to get more scientists and engineers into college. That was really the impetus. But before that, schools actually lent money directly to students. Not every school, but there were colleges that would use their own money to lend to students, and the default rates were very low. At some of these schools. And that was actually one of the reasons why Congress sort of gained the confidence to start a program, was because they had these officials testifying saying, you know, hey, we lend our students, and students are a good risk because they pay back at very high rates. Now, my strong hunch is the reason why they paid back at high rates back then, before the government got involved, was because schools wouldn't just give loans to anyone. They really paid attention to what the likelihood was that students would repay for a range of reasons, you know, whether it's what they're studying, whether it's how much they're going to borrow, how much they're going to earn, what their academic ability is. And so schools, when they had skin in the game and had to worry about whether they would lose money, were very reluctant, it seems, to give loans that were not likely to be repaid. There's this broad concept that if schools have skin in the game, if there's the threat of them losing money by making bad loans, they'll be less likely to make those bad loans. And so I think that that's a broad concept that really needs to be part of the broader discussion. I think that's an important issue.
2: I think Mitch Daniel, who is the former governor, former director of the budget in Washington, and now the president of Purdue, has been developing a relationship where the student and Purdue are in partnership. There's a variable Payback based on what you go do. So, if you want to go be a kindergarten teacher, you're going to have a lower income, you're going to have a lower rate of paying back. It's been a very interesting project. He's also, I think, managed to manage Purdue so intensely that I don't think they've had a tuition increase in seven years. But he's obviously a very rare president of modern higher education. Now, you've said that you don't support four years of college, but you do support one or two years of free college. What's your reasoning?
3: I guess I would frame it a little differently. But I think, yes, in the conclusion of my book, you know, I say, look, one of the things Congress should consider is making community college truly free. I don't think people realize that, you know, the cost of attendance on average per year just going to a two-year public college, even when you factor in grants and scholarships, is twelve or 13000 a year. The other point I think is important to understand is some of the highest default rates All right. Two year public colleges, people who went to a two year public college. When I started covering student debt, this was right after the financial crisis. And there was this big discussion in the news organizations in Congress about why would Congress allow these mortgage lenders to make loans to homeowners who were destined to fail? You know, this is where the phrase predatory lending became a big part of the lexicon. Predatory lending is awful. It's awful that for years mortgage lenders were giving loans to people that they had no ability to repay. And yet, this happens every single day when it comes to the student loan program. And one of the areas, it's not just for profit colleges, is people going to two year public colleges. And so, I found it really bizarre to observe this discussion on the housing side about predatory lending being this unethical thing. But then on the higher education side, I would look at what the higher education policy is. And you have people who literally need to take high school level courses again. Remedial education is a huge part of community college. Most students, at least half, need to take some type of remedial course in order just to get on track to go to college. There's data that shows these are at the highest risk of dropping out and defaulting on their loans. And it just seemed really bizarre to me from a public policy standpoint that the government continues to put loans into students that it knows full well are going to default. And then policymakers say, oh, my God, how did this happen? Like, why do we have a default crisis on our hands? And it's like, well, you know, it's very clear why this is happening. It's because people are taking out loans that they don't have an ability to repay. And so my point with community college is this. If you want to help people get an education, why would you give a certain cohort of students loans that you know are destined to not repay it? Like, how does that help anyone in the long run? It doesn't help Congress because Congress is going to lose money on those loans. It doesn't help the student, and so I just wanted to point that out and say, if people want to address this default crisis, one of the areas has to be a community college.
2: But of course, it does help the community college faculty and administrators who are an interest group who pressure their members of Congress.
3: I do think broadly colleges have a very big role to play here. Now, community colleges, to be fair to them, are not nearly as well resourced as four-year schools, but I do say this to every school I talk to. I say I've talked to Ivy League presidents. I've talked to community college leaders. No one thinks they're at fault here. No one thinks they're to blame, and it doesn't matter how much money schools have, regardless of the school, they're always going to feel like they need more money. They're always going to feel justified to raise their tuition. So I think you have a point there.
2: Well, you know, Biden has proposed in essence forgiving all the debt. What would the effect of that be?
3: I think it could have a really big unintended consequence, which is the story of my book, good intentions that lead to unintended consequences and oftentimes really bad consequences. You know, what I see happening is debt forgiveness is a bandaid. I'm not going to come out and say whether Biden should do this or that i am a journal reporter for my day job i want to avoid being an activist here however i do want to point out that if you forgive a trillion dollars in student debt right now the government will be right back up to 1.6 trillion within three or four or five years the government issues 120 billion dollars a year in loans so like if you forgive loans now what happens to the students who are in college this fall And then there is this issue of desensitizing everyone to debt. You're further desensitizing people to the price of their education, which could further lead to tuition inflation. Schools have already been saying, you know, look, if you go into public service, you'll get your loans forgiven. So don't worry about the high tuition that we're charging. That's already happening. And I could see that happen more if you just simply forgive debt.
2: I have to say, as an aside, when I watch a place like Harvard that has, I think, 36 billion dollars in their resources, and they charge tuition. They sort of have to wonder what the whole game is, and it's clearly not about education in the original sense back when they founded Harvard. Listen, I want to thank you very much. I must say, you are the first person I've talked to who actually has slowed down enough to begin to understand all the intricacies of the way this thing has evolved. As you pointed out, I was part of it both as a member and then as speaker, and... We always thought it would become a mess, but it has become a mess on a much bigger scale, I think, than we were ready for. We are going to have a link to buy your book, The Debt Trap, How Student Loans Became a National Catastrophe. It'll be on our show page at newsworld.com. And Josh, I really want to thank you for taking the time to share with our audience what you've been doing, and I encourage you to continue your research and continue your writing.
3: Thank you. I enjoyed talking to you about this.
2: Thank you to my guest, Josh Mitchell. You can read more about the student loan debt crisis in America on our show page at Newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newtsworld, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
0: I don't know what that
1: means.
4: It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! (laughs) Download the Zigazoo app today.
1: Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City.